Our hope is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our uh, School of Christi, a monthly group here at the Oratory for adults. And over these past, oh, I think two and a half years, we've been looking at the writings of a priest who was writing back in the 1940s. His name was Romano Guardini. Uh, lived in Germany, was an Italian in background, and uh, but he wrote a little book uh, for those who are new to the group called Meditations Before Mass, and it's a brief little book, less than 200 pages, and yet we've been able to spend two and a half years with it, and each little reflection is top to last in terms of its beauty and richness, and it's everything that you would expect uh, to have happened uh, following the Second Vatican Council, the whole idea behind the Council was that we were to return to the sources in order to understand what it is that we do, what we do, why it is that we do what we do, why do we celebrate the Mass in the way that we do. And so to go back to the sources, the scriptures, the fathers, uh, to, to look at the liturgy in order that we might participate in it more fully. And so after two and a half years, we come now to our last reflection entitled The Mass and Christ's Return. So it's looking at the Mass in light of the return of Christ, the second coming, and how our participation in Mass is actually our preparation for that moment and our surest preparation for that moment. And so I think in many ways we should find great comfort in particular in this reflection. And it's a fitting end, certainly, to Guardini's work and a, a fitting reflection for us as we come to the end of our liturgical year, in, in particular in preparation for Mass tomorrow. All of our readings will focus on exactly what Guardini is talking about here in this reflection. So this is almost like a little mini Bible study or mini preparation for tomorrow's liturgy. And uh, so I hope you find it as rich as I, I have each time I've read it over. It's more and more striking. And so the red italicized print in your booklet is just a little bit of my background reflection to get us going. And then the black print is what Guardini wrote. In this final reflection, Guardini reminds us that the gospel calls us to be vigilant, to remain spiritually awake and ready. We are to look for the signs of Christ's coming, though we do not know exactly when he will come. Our vigilance in preparation for this coming consists in worship. To remain spiritually awake is not first a matter of moral obedience to Christ, good and necessary as such obedience is. To prepare for this ultimate encounter with the all-holy God, every Christian needs to encounter him in the context of worship, particularly in the ritual worship of the church, and most especially in the Mass. So it's an interesting direction that Guardini is taking us in here. And the focus for us often in our Christian life is on morality. And we can fall into a kind of moralism and legalism in the process that the spiritual life, our relation, relationship with Christ can be reduced to how it is that we live our lives and uh, how perfectly we live our lives. And there's a kind of subtle trap in that because no matter how perfect our behavior might be, and no matter how driven that is by love, no matter how perfect our loving response might be, it still is not something that prepares us to come into the presence of God, to stand before the God of mercy, but also to stand before God as judge. 
And so what Guardini is telling us, and we find this in, uh, I mentioned in the second paragraph here, we find it echoed in Newman, Cardinal Newman, uh, that, that worship allows us to enter ahead of time into this deep and intimate union with the Lord. And it's only in and through this intimate union with him by receiving his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist that we are then prepared to come into the presence of God. It's only in union with Christ and participating in his perfect sacrifice that we could ever come into the presence of God. And so it pulls us away from looking at our faith as simply living out a moral life or living a good life and focuses us instead on seeking to live in as deep of intimacy as we can with Christ. This is our sure path and it is Christ alone. And this is what we have to have etched in our mind and imagination that all of our ascetical practices, all of our practices of prayer, fasting, vigils, whatever it might be, all of these must be geared to entering into this relationship with Christ and becoming one with him. And so all that we do should really be preparation for our participation in the mass. This is our deepest communion in Christ. And outside of this, outside of our worship, all of that means very little. Again, because our, our spiritual practices, our good behavior, is not something that allows us to come into the presence of God. Our meeting with Christ, our judge, will be as sudden and as, as intimate, I'm sorry, as sudden as it is intimate. Newman, like Ordini, once described this preparation to meet Christ as the most momentous reason we have for our worship. Worship provides the most direct mode of engagement we have with God. It has the most salubrious effect on us insofar as it prepares us for life after death. And it brings us into sacramental communion with God here and now. Human nature is not in itself prepared for the vision of God, but participation in the church's worship transforms and elevates our nature so that we might be able to come before him without being destroyed. So it's only by entering into this union and communion with Christ who took our human nature upon himself and offers this perfect sacrifice of love to God on our behalf. It's only in union and communion with him that our human nature is elevated. And this is what we celebrate on the Feast of the Ascension. When Christ ascends into heaven, he ascends bearing our humanity, resurrected body, of course, transformed through the resurrection, but nonetheless, it's our human nature. And it's because he's done this that he becomes the first fruits for, uh, of a saved humanity. And so it's our receiving of his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist that unites us to him and then holds, allows us to hold within our hearts the promise that we also share in the fullness of the life of the Most Holy Trinity. Outside of that relationship and outside of the gift that makes us one with him, there is not the possibility of our entering into union and communion with our God. And this should elevate for us in an extraordinary way, the way that we see Mass and the way that we understand our reception of Most Holy Communion. How are we to prepare ourselves knowing that we are not only receiving the Holy Eucharist to strengthen us or to help us live a, a, a more 
holy life, but that we are also preparing ourselves for the end times. We are also preparing ourselves for that moment that comes upon us in an instant where we will stand before God in the full light of his truth. What could possibly prepare us for that other than Christ, his perfect love and mercy, and our participation in it and receiving it in the Holy Eucharist? And so you begin to understand, I think even for many Catholic Christians, there isn't this clarity. I think intuitively we know that it's only in and through this gift that we we are saved. And we hear it in the gospel, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is real food and my body is real drink. And so we know in our minds and our hearts this is true, but so often, uh, we, we live our lives as though we don't grasp the import, I think, of that moment when we receive Holy Communion. And we don't often grasp the import of how it is that we prepare ourselves for that moment. And even Catholics, I think, who have left the faith altogether, always hold on to this vestige of their belief in the Holy Eucharist. I think one of the things that they lament most of all is the loss of participating in that reality. And so even if on uh, a psychological level, they've come to peace with the fact of leaving the church, for whatever reasons that might be, there's always, I think, this kind of inner ache of knowing that there has been a separation from something that is key to our life of faith. Not only, as I said, in our growth and holiness, but our preparation for that moment when we come to stand before God. And so one doesn't need to understand this, I think, through reading Romano Guardini. I think we know it in our minds and our hearts as those who've been created for God and as those who know that eventually we will stand before him. So, this worship is not first and foremost something we offer to God, but rather first his gift to us. Newman again writes, this, thus in many ways, he who is judged to us prepares us to be judged. He who is to glorify us prepares us to be glorified, that he may not take us unawares, but that when the voice of the archangel sounds and we are called to meet the bridegroom, we may be ready. I throw Newman in here a couple of times because after Gardini, we're moving on to a study of Newman's everyday meditations, very much like Gardini's. But Newman captures what Gardini is, is trying to say here, I think, beautifully. The God who's going to judge us himself prepares us for that moment when we will be judged. The God who wants to glorify, glorify us prepares us in order that we might share in that glory in its fullness by giving us the gift of the Holy Eucharist. So it tells us something extraordinary about God's love, that he gives us everything necessary, everything that we need for for salvation, he puts within our hands. All we need to do is to take hold of it in faith and begin over time, as we've talked about so, so often in the past, to live from Eucharist to Eucharist 
that we receive the Holy Eucharist, we're strengthened to live our lives as Christians. We anticipate the next moment when we're able to enter into that moment of consummation with the Lord, to receive his love again, to be strengthened by it, and then to be able to carry on with the life that he's called us to. So our mysticism as Christian men and women is sacramental, it's Eucharistic. Our life revolves around the Holy Eucharist. Our understanding of what it is to be a Christian revolves around the Holy Eucharist because we know it's there that we are healed. We know it's there that we are prepared for that moment of judgment and our participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. So there should be a kind of anticipation that we have for Mass and a kind of thrill that begins to come over the soul as we are preparing ourselves to receive the Holy Eucharist, if we understand what it is that we're doing. We, can, we should never uh, come to Mass and engage in the Mass in a kind of perfunctory way, that we're fulfilling some obligation. And we've talked about that in the past too. This is probably the worst possible word that could ever be connected with going to Mass. Obligation, fulfilling your Sunday obligation. It's like fulfilling your obligation to be saved. You know, fulfilling your obligation to come before God so that he might judge you with mercy. It's ridiculous. And so we should do away with the word altogether. It is our privilege. It is the most precious gift that God has given us. And we should hold it so. This worship is not first and foremost something we offer to God, but rather first his gift to us. Newman writes again, this in many ways, he who, oh, I'm sorry, I read this, part, read this paragraph. <laughs> sorry, I didn't have my coffee tonight. The real presence makes possible an interpersonal encounter with Christ in the Eucharist. And this encounter makes possible our preparation to meet Christ at the end of our lives and the end of time. It is this liturgical and sacramental worship that fuels the spiritual vigilance to which Christ calls us. So we, we hear Christ over and over again telling us, watch and pray, be ready. You know neither the, the day nor the hour. And so our receiving of the Holy Eucharist, we are being told here, should be the fuel that re really helps us to anticipate that moment, that points us in that direction and clarifies and sharpens our vision in, in the sense of the purpose of our life, our identity. Everything is subordinate to our relationship with God. And if we understand the Eucharist as leading us ultimately to him, then everything in our life should be subordinate to our participation in the Holy Eucharist. If we were to do one single thing in a given day, it should be the Holy Eucharist, participation in Mass. There's no more perfect thing that we could participate in than that reality. So no matter what work we might do in this world, it's not to take anything away from it or the things of beauty that we see in the world or that we are given to participate in by God. All of these things remain beautiful, but we can only really see their true beauty in and through the, the eyes that also see the presence of our God in the gift of the Holy Eucharist. Only eyes that have been purified, as it were, by the grace that we receive through this gift can truly see the true beauty of this creation and how we are, are to embrace it. So, you know, 
often evangelical Christians will ask that question, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? And our resounding response should be yes. The most personal and intimate relationship of all. In fact, I place all of my hope in that relationship and what Christ gives me on a daily basis that he nourishes me upon his love. He nourishes me upon his life. What could be more intimate than that? And yet, because the question is put to us, we often will hem and haw around as though we don't have a clue as to what to say to that question. I think I've mentioned in some groups here, I used to, when I began spiritual direction as a young priest, I'd ask somebody when they would come to me, you know, uh, who is Christ for you? And I thought, that's a good place to begin. Who is Christ for you? Simple question. But it turns out it's not that simple for people. We can, we can believe in Christ and we can uh, hold these faiths to be true, but there's something different uh, than having a, a living and experiential knowledge of Christ. And so the response that I typically got was a confused look on the face of the individual, like deer in the headlights look. And then it would become panic stricken. And then inevitably they would burst into tears. <laughs> so that, that was the end, that was short lived in terms of my spiritual direction. Uh, that that was in some ways too intimate of a question to ask. Because in reality, Sometimes people come to you not really being sure about that. They were raised as a Catholic. They were raised as a Christian, but not perhaps know how to navigate this relationship or even how to speak about it. Might receive, have received Holy Communion for 20, 30, 40 years and yet not be able to verbalize with that kind of certainty, that absolute certainty to say, yes, this is my Lord and Savior. And I experience the deepest and most intimate love with him on a daily basis. That can only arise out of a heart that has struggled over the course of time to enter into that relationship fully. In a similar way, when a man and woman get married, they may have been dating for a number of years, but they know nothing of each other until they've entered into that marriage and begin living together on a day-to-day -day basis they see each other with a transparency. Nothing is any, any longer hidden. You see the full truth about the other person over the course of time. And it's there that love is put to test, to the test, but it's there that also that love is deepened and perfected. In a similar way in our relationship with Christ, it's only by entering into that relationship on a day-to-day -day basis, becoming more and more vulnerable to him, allowing him to see the depths of our hearts, the things that need to be healed, allowing ourselves to sit within his presence and be gazed upon. Eucharistic adoration is the most powerful way that we begin to experience this intimacy that both Gordini and Newman were speaking of here, outside of our actual participation in Mass, to gaze upon the Eucharistic face of Christ and allow ourselves to be gazed upon. And it's interesting, the first, when you first encourage people to engage in that practice, it can be very uncomfortable for that reason. It's so beautiful because we're in a concrete, tangible way. We are gazing at, is what it, at the very heart of our faith life. 
but you come to see over a very short period of time that it's not one a one-way gaze, that it's a gaze of God that penetrates to the depths of the heart and the soul. And that at first can be very frightening, eventually it becomes very healing, and then it becomes something that we thirst for. Any questions or comments so far? We'll get to the real meat of it now with Guardini. All right, first paragraph. But I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I shall drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father, Matthew 26. Like the concept of the covenant, which we have just discussed, this word of Christ, too, has been strangely neglected. Before choosing these meditations, let I'm sorry, before closing these meditations, let us turn our attention to it. St. Luke places the passage after the offering of the last of the Passover cups, before the words that actually institute the Eucharist. Jesus seems to be gazing through and beyond the hour of the Last Supper to the coming of the kingdom. He is referring to the future eternal fulfillment that lies somewhere behind the inevitable death toward which, in obedience to the Father's will, he must now stride. The passage tinges the whole memorial with a singular radiance, which seems largely to have faded from the Christian consciousness. So what Gordini is saying here is that Christ, already in the institution of the Eucharist, has his eyes set upon the future, upon the second coming. And so he's already telling them, I will not drink of this cup again until I shall drink with you in the kingdom of my Father. So he's already pointing to the kingdom. So already infused in our understanding of the Holy Eucharist should be this sense that we are eating and drinking in preparation for something even greater. Or in anticipation of that, we are already experiencing it experiencing it, receiving it, but we are going to receive it in all of its fullness when we come into that intimacy with the Holy Trinity. But if we lose this sense, and this is what he's saying in the last sentence, it seems largely to have faded from Christian consciousness. So in some ways, we as Christian men and women allow this sense of preparing for the end, preparing for the moment of judgment, and in some way in anticipation of that, preparing for our deaths to slip out of mind. And sometimes we push it out of mind in a form of resistance, both spiritual and psychological, because we fear it. And the more we distance ourselves from Christ, the more our focus becomes world-bound, material-bound, and we become focused upon protecting our health protecting our rights, protecting our world, rather than protecting the reality that exists right within our own hearts, which is that relationship, that intimacy with with our God that has been established with Christ, but also in our very creation as human beings, made in the image and likeness of God. This is the most profound reality of who we are as human beings. We have been made for God. We have been made to participate in the fullness of that life. But when our faith weakens, we begin to turn to the things of this world, seeking our fulfillment within them. And then we begin to fear those things. We fear death. 
we fear coming into the presence of God. We fear the moment of judgment. So either we are in a constant state of anxiety or we push it into the unconscious. So some people actually find themselves inexplicably having this terror about death within them. They fear death on a day-to-day basis. And one of the reasons for that is the disconnect with God, the one who's the Lord of the living and the dead. The more that we turn away from him, the more that we begin to experience within ourselves a kind of existential angst. We become anxious about our, our life, where we're going. And we might even not know the reason for that. We just experience it in our very being because we've turned away from he who is the source of our being, the source of our life. And so what Gardini will tell us throughout this reflection is that we must keep this in our field of vision. We we must be thinking about this in every celebration of the Most Holy Eucharist. This is why we, we read, say, in the Desert Fathers, the constant counsel to remember death. It wasn't because they had some morbid curiosity with death itself, but they they knew how important it was to understand that our life in this world is limited, and this world itself is limited. It's not going to last forever. Eventually, it will come to nothing. And if, you know, I don't want this to come off sounding like it might come off sounding, but uh, the the whole uh, what, what's the the whole uh, concern now with uh, what, what is it that people are frightened of the Earth uh, climate change? I'm sorry, I'm, my brain's not working tonight. The whole you know, not even just concern about it, but sort of fear and anxiety that is being built around it, in my mind, is arising out of this deeper lack of faith. It's not that we should be unconcerned about our world or how we are using our resources uh, or how that affects uh, other people. It should be on our mind, but it should not be at the forefront of our mind because in a sense that makes us materialists, we're we're focused upon this world in such a way that it becomes the thing that uh, is is driven by our energy, that we're directing all of our energy to the pursuit of these things. We are making that the most important thing. Everything must be subordinated to protecting the climate. Well, we should be saying, inevitably the world is going to be passing away. That does not mean we misuse the world or we are inattentive to this, to to those realities. But because everything is subordinated to our relationship with God and the world is passing away and we are passing away, our greatest concern should be with that relationship with God. And in my mind, the hyper fixation upon climate change and turning it into a moral issue that unless you believe this, unless you're doing this, unless you're doing everything to prevent this, that there is something, there's a kind of blind spot within you. Well, the real blind spot, I think, is in our inability to see he who is the Lord of creation. He who is the Lord of heaven and earth. That should clarify our vision about how we we treat the earth, but it should not make us lose sight of what is most important in our day-to-day life. 
know, people will praise others who are getting up on the stump, you know, preaching about climate change. The moment you get up and preach about Christ or preach about the Eucharist, you're a nut. You know, you're a fanatic in this world. But we should have that holy boldness. Not that we need to dismiss the concerns of the world. We shouldn't. But the thing that we should be preaching with the most energy and the most, uh, you know, with the the sense of the the most urgency is faith in Christ. That's where our hope is to be found and the hope for our children and grandchildren. He goes on to say, it might be objected that this word was perhaps important to Jesus personally, but not for his Eucharistic memorial, that before his death, the Lord's vision, grave and knowing, reached across the future to the end of all things, that this thought was part of the subjective experience of the hour, but has nothing to do with the sacred act, which henceforth is to stand at the core of Christian life. But what St. Paul writes of the establishment of the Eucharist overturns all such authorities. So we might want to say in our mind, this is what Christ saw, that in his vision of all things, he could see the connection between the Eucharist and our future participation in the life of God, but it doesn't really need to be a part of our thought and our celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Bob Gardini is saying, no, I'm sorry, look at St. Paul and what Paul has to say about this, and he confirms it in a very strong way. But what St. Paul writes of the establishment of the Eucharist overturns all such theories. For I myself have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and giving thanks broke and said, this is my body which shall be given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup after he had supped saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Until he comes. So Paul, you know, in these earliest writings of the, uh, one of the earliest apostles of the church is telling us that we participate in the Eucharist. And that Christ sets, sets it up, even in his words of institution, that we, we do this in remembrance of him until he comes. And so we, we, the way that we are celebrating the Eucharist inherently carries within it this anticipation of the final judgment. Again, these are, are little things that we allow to slip out of our consciousness. You know, we... we in our lack of preparation, perhaps for the celebration of the Mass, or our lack of catechesis, we lose the ability to hold this before our minds. And so we participate in the Eucharist sort of as a matter of course, out of habit, every day, perhaps even, and yet maybe not have this, this clarity of vision. And he goes on, can anyone still speak seriously of a mere expression of Jesus' passing mood Specifically, St. Paul connects the last things with the celebration of the Lord's memorial. And we must not forget that the apostles' epistles are at least as early, some of them earlier than the Gospels, and that they voice the powerful religious consciousness of the first congregations. So, 
we can't reduce this to a mood of Jesus. You know, what he had in his mind and heart on the night of the Last Supper. Because we see in the writings of Paul, which were written earlier than some of the Gospels, Gordini is telling us, already here in the consciousness of the first Christian communities, this sense of eating and drinking the body and blood of our Lord in preparation for the Last Judgment. A clear connection in their minds. And so if it's a clear connection in their minds, it must be in ours as well. From all this, it is apparent that when the Lord instituted the Eucharist, things appeared before his inner vision more or less as follows. He knew that on the next day he would die. He knew furthermore that one day he would return, though of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but the Father only. For the period between the two events, he was establishing the memorial of his redemptory death. This was to be the strength and comfort of the oppressed, indeed of all who look forward to his coming, and a constant reminder of his glorious promise. Compared to that fulfillment, passing time with all its self-importance is really only marking time before the essential. Holy Mass, then, is distinctly eschatological, and we should be much more concerned about our forgetfulness of that fact. So, Holy Mass is distinctly eschatological. Eschatology is simply the study of the last things, heaven, hell, death, and judgment. And so, Cordini is saying here that uh, the Mass has this distinctive eschatological dimension that we must never lose in our participation within it. That it's, it's always holding out for us this sense of hope it's always giving us strength to continue to move forward, no matter what it is that we are experiencing in this life, no matter how difficult life becomes for us. The Eucharist is always drawing us on to something greater. It's always holding out to us this vision of hope. So our life might crumble around us. We might experience failure. We might experience deep loss of a loved one. We might see our, our work our jobs crumble before us. And for the Christian, the man and woman of faith, this should not then lead to the crumbling of our identity. Our identity is rooted in something eternal. And that should allow us, not as though we are Stoics, that we wouldn't feel all those things intensely. We know Christ himself wept at the death, at the death of his friend Lazarus. But having our identity be, being rooted in eternity allows us to see through those things, to see through the tears with the gift of hope, to see Christ and see the, the, our loved ones who've died, to see the empty tomb that the apostles saw and, and rejoiced. And so this is what we should always hold on to. But that, what is this eschatological that we meet so frequently in the newer literature? It is that which pertains to the last things, and it exists in a natural form in our consciousness of the fundamental uncertainty of existence. By this we do not mean any superficial uncertainty connected with our personal existence or with general existence, though this is of course part of it. 
but the underlying uncertainty of all existence. There are certain individuals, there are certain individuals who know nothing of this. In fact, it has been ignored by all certain periods, by all uncertain periods. So, he's not, this is not talking about the uncertainty of our own life and that surrounds our life. We know that uh, from one day to the next, things could radically change for us. Tomorrow, we could be diagnosed with a terminal illness. And it includes that reality and that understanding. But what Gordini is saying here is an underlying uncertainty of all existence. That this should change the way that we look at the world and life as we know it completely. That whatever we see in the universe, however we look at the world, there is a fundamental impermanence about it. It's not eternal. Forever how long this world has existed, it still is not eternal. It's going to come to an end point. In fact, it's going to be brought to an end point by Christ himself. And again, you know, this breaks the illusion. It crushes the illusion that we often hold in our mind that our stability is rooted in what seems stable and secure around us. We hold on desperately to things that, that give us even the, the smallest bit of com comfort in the face of our own fears and anxieties. But it's only when we, as it were, crush that illusion and come to the understanding all of this is going to pass away into dust that we come to know the greater comfort, the comfort that it comes to us only through the promise of Christ and the gift of the Eucharist, that we are promised a participation in a life that has no end. And so we want to move away from a kind of false hope. And you remember me talking a little bit earlier about this kind of intense anxiety and hyper-focus on climate change, that it has become this moral and almost spiritual issue for many people in the world, that this now is the fundamental thing that we should be pursuing and protecting. But again, un underneath this is a denial of, of what Guardini is saying here that all of this is going to pass away, no matter what we do to protect the environment or to try to maintain the climate on our earth, eventually it's going to come to a definitive end. And again, this should not take away from our doing the right thing or what is necessary, but we don't want to live our lives out in light of a fear or an anxiety something that we should not be fearful or anxious about. What we should be fearful and anxious about is losing sight of our distinctive identity in Christ and taking hold of the enduring and eternal gift that he's given us. What could possibly be more important than that? And you can see this shift even in, in the church itself and even how many bishops, many theologians talk about theological issues, there's often a disconnect from the lived experience of being united to Christ. And it betrays itself in that kind of language that all, all of a sudden elevates 
these human concerns, not though as though they're unimportant. You know, whether it's our care for the poor or our care for the climate, those things should be in our mind and they're part of the demands that, that are placed upon us to love. But when those supersede our living for God and seeking God above all things, we've gone down the wrong path altogether. And eventually that faith is going to dissipate into, into the point that it becomes either so distorted and confused that it's no longer Christianity or it's just lost altogether to individuals, to entire groups. And I think, you know, anyone who can sort of look at the culture, look at the culture within the church, can see that movement and see that movement taking place very clearly. And, you know, I don't stand up here to make myself judge, of, certainly of bishops or theologians, because I think certainly personally I've struggled with those anxieties and fears of my own that are, discon that are rooted in a disconnect from that relationship with Christ. You know, where I've become overly anxious about my work or back when I was a student about grades. You know, it, it's found in everything that we become fearful about. When you get sick for the first time with something that at least seems life-threatening to you, it might not actually be life-threatening. When you get sick for that first time and you have to undergo surgery or something like that, then all of a sudden you see a quality of your faith that you never saw before because you are brought very close to the thought of your own mortality. You're, you're compelled to think about your own existence in a way that you never have before. And that can be a terrifying moment or it can be a transformative moment in the life of a person. It can be a clarifying moment. Where am I living my life? Why did I lose my peace so quickly? Why was I overcome with fear and anxiety? Important questions. Any thoughts or comments? I've been yakking on here for a good bit. I was listening to a, uh, it was a, a video on YouTube uh, by a Franciscan priest who was talking about the Eucharist and how, you know, politicians and so forth today, you know, there's an uproar around that. Mm -hmm. And um, how there's a difference between, and this comes kind of uniquely, I think, from a um, U.S. perspective, is we treat it as a commodity right. versus a covenant, you know, where one, you have a right to, where you have, you know, a fix to, it's going to fix something, right. versus, you know, your life depends on it. Right. Um, and you know, it was very interesting. Yeah, the thought process, you know, when you think about it, you right. know, the covenant that's, that's there and how you how do you prepare yourself for that covenant, you know, that you receive? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we see this loss begin to take place, then our movement is going to be directly towards a kind of moralism and legalism. That the faith life becomes reduced to that. Is this person doing this? not doing this and then as you said we commodify something like the Holy Eucharist or the whole idea of weaponizing it yeah things like but that, I, I think what is not being seen 
I think by many of the bishops and by or by also many of those who are fixated upon this in one direction or another is the profound lack of catechesis that exists, the profound void that exists that gives rise to that kind of thinking. You only find these kinds of extremes when there is a void in the spiritual life of the community, a void in their understanding of what Christ has done for us, what we've become in him, and what we receive in the Holy Eucharist. And when a vision of that is lost, we go in one direction or, or another. You know, that it doesn't matter how we live our lives. And so we go up and receive the Holy Eucharist because we feel that there's a kind of ownership about that. We're Catholic and why should we be excluded about it? Or, you know, we uh, turn it into a kind of moralism where we, we become the judge of others. Well, okay, they are not, they're living a life where it's objectively it's creating a scandal. They are objectively setting aside church teaching and so they should be excluded from that. And, you know, it's certainly within a bishop's responsibility to make certain judgments, but I think the greater and the first question should be asked is why is this question coming up all the time? And is there a loss in our understanding and belief in not only the real presence of Christ within the Eucharist, but the implications for, for of, of receiving the Eucharist for us as human beings? What we become, what's held out to us as a, a promise within it, what it's preparing us for. And when we hear Bardini and someone like Newman saying, this is preparing us for the last judgment. When we come to stand before God in a light that is so penetrating that nothing remains hidden. And how can we feel prepared for that moment unless what the Father sees is his Son and the perfect love of his Son? And in faith, we have embraced that and given ourselves over to it. How how can we imagine ourselves, no matter what kind of life we've lived, how could we imagine ourselves coming before God without having been made one with Christ in the Holy Eucharist. So, again, you know, I think what is so fascinating about Guardini writing back in the 1940s is that he anticipated, anticipated in what he's focused on about what should have taken place from the Second Vatican Council on it is this kind of understanding that we, we, over these past 60 years or so, is it 60 years already, that we should have been immersing ourselves in fully. This is what would have enlivened the faith of the, of the church. Instead, we get into these massive disputes about liturgy because it's been done so poorly and flippantly over the last 60 years, or there have been these piecemeal changes or experimentation taking, or there's this movement to go back to what was because this is so horrible and that this has greater validity than this. And so if you step back and you think about it, it's like we've lost our way all altogether. We are not understanding the essence of what Christ has given us, and we've reduced it to something that we could understand, control, and argue about until the end of time. <laughs> we could reduce the sacraments to a commodity. That's right. Know, oh, we got to get baptism. We got to get you know. Right. Went, but they never show up for church after that. Right. 
Well, that, that's been the movement. And we've talked about this before. It used to end at confirmation. Once a, you know, a son or daughter was confirmed, then suddenly the family stopped going to the church.